Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, John Hudak's regular update on what's happening in Congress. This week, Congress welcomes President Obama to give one of his last State of the Union addresses of his presidency. Unique about this State of the Union address for the president will be that he'll, for the first time, be facing a completely Republican-led Congress as he gives his address on, on what the nation is facing and how strong the state of our union is. There will be several issues that the president plans on covering and will will likely cover in a, a fairly robust way. And the first is both immigration and the related appropriations bill for the Department of Homeland Security. Immigration is a winning issue for Democrats, and the president knows it. And it's also an immediate issue that Congress is facing as they deliberate the funding for the Department of Homeland Security, at least for a good portion of this year. Congress has a deadline in February that they have to meet in order to fund the department, and associated with that are several Republican amendments to the appropriations bill that seek to strip out of it the president's executive actions on immigration. This is an issue that the president will face head on, and what he hopes is that it not only moves some votes on the issue, but also frames the issue for the American public to understand both why he's taken the actions that he has and what effects it will have both on society and on the economy. But beyond immigration, the president has much more to talk about. One of the big issues that he'll talk about is tax reform, his desire to tax the 1% of American income earners uh, to pay for tax breaks for the rest of the population. Tax reform in itself is important to the president, but it's also important for a broader policy agenda that both the president, the Democratic Party, and Congress, and eventually the party standard bearer for the 2016 elections are going to focus on, and that's economic inequality and economic opportunity. And expect to hear quite a bit this week from the president on this issue and surely in his address. He'll talk about his community college proposal and other ways to boost the middle class so they can catch up with what's been a fairly robust recovery of the economy over the past few years. But what's most unique about a State of the Union address after a president's final midterm is that he resists the temptation to focus on himself and his own interests and his own policy desires and starts working toward framing and creating a tone that will be used in the 2016 presidential election. The next time we have a federal election in the United States, it will be done to replace President Obama. And tonight's speech will be one of the first shots in that race to the White House and one in which the president can have tremendous influence. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress. My guest today is an internationally acclaimed thinker and leader on the prosperity, competitiveness, and vitality of metropolitan areas in the U.S. and abroad. He is vice president and founding director of the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings and co-author of The Metropolitan Revolution, and he is perhaps the most traveled Brookings scholar. He is Bruce Katz. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Well, thanks for having me. I know you were born in Brooklyn. How has that contributed, if at all, to your lifelong dedication to the affairs of urban areas? Well, I grew up in Brooklyn at a time when Brooklyn was Brooklyn. <laughs> it's a very different place right now. Um, I, I think what it taught me from an early age is that cities are just places of incredible energy and movement and serendipity. Um, and, you know, I was taking the train by myself 
uh, from the time I was probably 10 years old into Manhattan. My father worked in midtown Manhattan for some years, downtown Manhattan other years. So it just gave you as a child a sense of possibility, a sense of freedom, a sense of independence. Um, and I also used a portion of my high school um, life to, to actually work for the city council. And that's really what I became passionate about, not just cities, but about the ways in which government working with the private and civic sector could uh, help cities grow in very interesting ways. Cool. I, I want to uh, jump off from there to ask you kind of a sidebar definitional question. It's about cities. Sure. It's about metros. So you direct the, the Metropolitan Policy Program. You wrote the Metropolitan Revolution. Uh, we talk about cities and metro. So uh, growing up uh, where I did in Dallas, I know it's the ninth largest city in the U.S. Right. Fort Worth is the 17th. Uh, they're both smaller than Houston or San Antonio, but you take them together, and they're the fourth largest metropolitan right. area. And, and similarly, Brooklyn, if it were its own city again, I think it would be the fourth largest city in the country. Why is this an important distinction? Well, metropolitan areas, which are cities and suburbs uh, and exurbs and some of the rural environs taken together, is the true organic economy. Um, over time, we've divided up our metropolitan areas. Uh, into central cities, into municipalities, into urban counties uh, for, for purposes of government and governance. But when you think about labor markets, when you think about commuter sheds, which is travel to work areas, the way the British call it, um, that's the metropolitan area. Uh, that's the true integrated economies in the way in which firms, workers interact together, in which infrastructure serves them. So from a very early part of our program, we tried to basically declare we are not going to distinguish between cities, suburbs, exurbs, and, and rural areas. We're going to try to put forward this notion of a 21st century metropolis, the way the economy really works. Um, and then obviously these different parts of the metro areas uh, serve different purposes, have different functions. Um, and I think that is the right signal to send because in a global economy, what you want is your metropolitan areas collaborating together uh, to compete on the global stage and to end what for a long time I think was the internal strife and division between city and suburb, between suburb and exurb. We're all in this together essentially in our metropolitan areas and I think by focusing on that geography, we send that signal. Well, let me ask you this then. You've written that metropolitan areas are the engines of the national economy. Is this a new phenomenon? I don't think it's a new phenomenon but I think it's become more pronounced in the 21st century. Um, at the end of the day, what metropolitan areas uh, reflect is the agglomeration and the concentration of assets. So in the United States, which is really the quintessential metro nation, we have 388 metropolitan areas, these cities and suburbs taken together. They're 84% of our population and they're 91% of our GDP. For all intents and purposes, you know, the, our nation's economy is is nested and grounded in our metro metropolitan areas. 47 of our 50 states have a majority of their GDP generated by their metro areas. We focus on the top 100 metro areas, which are about 500,000 in population and above. They're one-eighth of the land mass. They're two-thirds of the population. They're three-quarters of the GDP. And on everything that matters to a modern economy, whether it's schools or innovation or infrastructure, there's 75, 80, 85, 90% of the nation's share. So a lot of statistics, but at the end of the day, what it means is the U.S. is the preeminent economy in the world because we're a metropolitan nation. 
uh, that agglomerates our assets and then leverages them. And that might be uh, a good segue into talking more specifically about the book that you co-authored with Jennifer Bradley. It came out in 2013. A new paperback edition just recently came out. It's called The Metropolitan Revolution, How Cities and Metros Are Fixing Our Broken Politics and Fragile Economy. Why did you write this book? I think we wrote this book because we saw that the U.S. uh, was experiencing major challenges, um, structural challenges, income inequality, wage stagnation, um, in a a global economy, climate change for sure. Um, But we were also dealing with a situation where our national government is not only mired in partisan rancor, but really has ceased to operate in any functional or reliable or consistent way. What is happening in the United States is cities and metropolitan areas, which as you've said, are already the engines of the economy, are now becoming the vanguard of policy innovation and progress. They're stepping up, not just as governments, because cities and metros are networks, but as corporate civic political institutions and leaders, and they're doing the hard work to move our economy forward. And they're making manufacturing a priority again. They're investing in infrastructure. They're equipping workers with the skills they need. So we wrote this book because we wanted to show the country that we are not dependent upon 537 elected officials living in Washington, D.C. We're a strong nation because we're a federal republic, and we have tens of thousands of leaders working every day to move their places forward. And that, that's what the book is about, stories of progress, stories of pragmatic problem solving. Now, you've mentioned innovation, um, addressing climate change, manufacturing. I know there's a ton of this in the book. These sound like um, case studies, things that, that metro areas do that people don't realize that they do. Uh, is, that, is that the case, you think? And, and is that what you found in your uh, thinking and travels about this book? Well, I think for, for a while, and I think this is sort of the New Deal Great Society phenomenon, that when we think about the U.S. as a federal republic, we tend to emphasize the federal and denigrate the republic, right? So we, we've had almost a mythology of federal power. Um, if, you, if you put on the nightly news every night, all you read about or hear about is what the president is doing or what the Congress is doing. And, and I think what that has um, you know, resulted in over time is we forget how powerful the republic is, cities, metropolitan areas, and their states. Um, you look at education and skills critical to our competitiveness and dealing with income inequality. The bulk of the financing comes from state and local governments. When you think of infrastructure writ large, not just roads and bridges and transit, but broadband and energy and water sewer, a lot of that gets designed, financed, and delivered at the local metropolitan and state level. The federal government is critical. It's critical to the safety net. It's critical to protecting the homeland. It's critical to investing in research and development. But frankly, prosperity in this country is shared across levels of government and across sectors of society. We forgot that by basically elevating to the national government to a level that they've never played in this country. We're not Britain. I mean, we are a very different nation where power is diffused and, and, and basically devolved in many respects. So when, uh, when we were kids, maybe still today, but I hope not, we learned that federalism is a triangle with the federal government at, t- at the top, the states, the next level, and then metros and cities below that. But you've called that a tired construct. And I think you just explained why. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit more on, 
on why that's a tired Well, no, I, I think you're right. We thought about it as a pyramid where the federal government sits on top and they rain down resources and rules and the rest of us uh, basically dutifully um, respond to, to, you know, to federal signals. Uh, just not the way we operate in the United States. I mean, much more entrepreneurial, much more dynamic, much more innovative. I mean, no one's waiting for Washington to do anything, particularly now <laughs> that Washington is not doing anything. So in my view, because cities and metros are the engines of the economy, the centers of trade, they're on the front lines of demographic change and climate change, they're at the top of the pyramid. And really what we have is a national government and states that should be in the service of city and metropolitan areas, their priorities, their visions. Um, We're also not one country in a way because these 100 metros or 388 metros have very distinct economies, uh, very different assets, very different possibilities. So what you really want is for the national and state governments to be in the service of these distinctive visions and possibilities. Um, So this is a different vision. I think it is very much aligned and in tune with the 21st century, uh, which is where networks and uh, distributed decision-making, I think, is going to rule, already does. Cities and metros are networks. They're not governments. And therefore, I think um, we, we need to put them center, central to the debate of how the country moves forward. You cited a few things that that the federal government has to do, including uh, the the social safety net at large, um, homeland security protection, and there's many other things that you've talked about in the book and elsewhere. But is is there some sense in which the federal government is in the way of metropolitan progress? I mean, does it need to get out of the way if so? I mean, what would it what would it do to let cities and metros? you know, release their full potential? I think the federal government represented uh, sort of the deification of specialization in the 21st, 20th, 20th century. Um, we would have transportation specialists. We would have housing specialists, people who understood uh, environmental or energy issues. And each of these guilds or disciplines would sit in the separate agencies and they would problem solve in a technocratic way. Well, that's just not the way the world works. The world works in a much more organic and integrated and holistic way. If you want to solve a transportation challenge, congestion, let's say, the best way of solving it might be with a technological solution or by, by relocating housing and um, you know, office and retail and employment in more dense areas. So the federal government operates in a vertical way, in a silo way, in a stovepipe way. The world works in a horizontal, integrated way. Cities and metropolitan areas understand that solutions don't come from compartmentalized um, interventions. They really come from uh, the joining up of these separate disciplines. So I think one thing that the federal government should be thinking about is allowing states, cities, and metropolitan areas much greater flexibility Uh, to move resources around if they're coming from the national government um, to basically problem solve in a way that's aligned to that particular place. Um, In a hot market, that may mean there needs to be more attention paid uh, to housing affordability. If it's a soft market or a weak market, there needs to be more attention paid to, you know, really sort of uh, goosing and catalyzing, priming the pump of uh, economic growth. So I I think the 20th century bureaucratic state 
uh, really reflected a particular moment in time, this is a very, very, very different century that I think cities and metros really are the manifestation of, uh, of solutions. So let's forget about the federal government now for a few minutes. Yeah, let's. <laughs> I've already forgotten about okay. them, but I Terrific. do tend to talk about them right. a lot. <laughs> so thinking about metro areas, uh, and again, you've traveled a lot. Uh, what uh, metro areas in particular and or trends are you looking at most closely in the coming years as, as exemplars of innovation growth, solving some of our most difficult problems? Well, first, I think you've got to look at the big disruptive dynamics, you know, which come to ground in cities and metropolitan areas. So if you think about just a few disruptive dynamics right now, um, I think the spatial geography of innovation is shifting, not just in the United States, but across the world. If, if you and I were sitting here 30 years ago, and the question was, well, where's, where's the center of innovation or a metropolis? Um, and we were sitting in a downtown of a, of, a, of a metro as we are today. We'd get in our car, we'd drive 30 miles to a science park or an industrial park, and we say, okay, that's the center of innovation. Um, you know, large companies operating in isolation with closed facilities with really no urban amenities around. I mean, you, you drive to the park, you, you go into your office building, and you don't emerge till after sundown. Um, and that's where innovation happened within the walls of a particular company. If you want to see innovation today, um, go to an area um, like in Kendall Square in Cambridge near MIT or in University City in Philly near Drexel and University of Pennsylvania or in the Oakland neighborhood of Pittsburgh near Carnegie Mellon. Companies, entrepreneurs, talented workers want to be close to these advanced research institutions, medical campuses, global companies with R&D uh, because they want to be near talent and they want to near be institutions and companies that are really generating discoveries for the market. It's much more integrated. It's much more networked. It's much more open as, as opposed to closed. So the, the, this, the geography of innovation is shifting radically um, because the market uh, is really extolling integration and proximity and density. It's revaluing cities. And workers, talented workers, younger workers, want to be in places that have a pulse. They want to bike to work, walk to work, you know, take a transit line to work. They don't want to basically just drive and go into, you know, sort of a closed, isolated facility for the entire day. Ideas come from the synergies and the interaction of people, not just within a particular company, but really within a whole city. This reminds me of what you've said about the uh, the famous research triangle park in North right. Carolina, which is one of these traditional um, ex, uh, outside of the developed area center for innovation. It in and of itself is trying to become more urban, more dense. Is that is that what you've seen? Yeah, I think. Mean, look, the research triangle park is an enormous you know uh, success story. I mean, it's carved out of seven thousand acres of pineland forest. Um, you know, going back since the late 50s. I mean, enormous success. A big part of North Carolina really entering the 20th century as a productive, innovative place. But today, if you look at innovative companies, many of them want to go to downtown Durham, you know, occupy a former warehouse, renovate it for the innovative economy, co-working space, incubator space, or they want to go to downtown Raleigh or Chapel Hill to be near UNC. So RTP, Research Triangle Park, to be competitive has to urbanize a portion of the park. They have to give companies and workers um, what they demand, which is a lively, vibrant, walkable, quality place. Place matters to economies. Place matters to people. 
in ways that it really didn't in the latter part of the 20th century. And so I think this is, um, a, you know, in some ways a very disruptive time, but almost an exhilarating, liberating time for the U.S. to balance out its growth, which was for a long time tilted um, towards these isolated, you know, s- separate uh, areas to ones that really give people much greater choice in where they live, work, and play. And you've mentioned some examples, but I, I'm continually surprised when you talk about Detroit as another <laughs> right. example of, of one of these these spaces. Can you just briefly talk about Detroit? Well, Detroit is a very large city. Um, it's 138 square miles. It used to be close to 2 million people. It's now down to less than 700,000. But if you look to the core of Detroit, uh, which is about seven square miles. So we're talking about the riverfront along the Detroit River. Canada actually sits to the south, which is interesting. The downtown area where you have, you know, Ford Field and Comerica Park, up the famous Woodward Corridor to Midtown where you have Wayne State, Henry Ford Health System, the College for Creative Studies, Detroit Medical Campus. This is where Detroit will come back. It's a downtown Midtown area, and frankly, all of our cities have these places. It's where the city began to grow, which is coming back as an innovation hub. Tech firms, entrepreneurial firms, residential housing, retail, consumption, um, because people want to be in places that, again, are vibrant and vital and have these good bones that have really distinctive street grids, buildings, historic architecture. That is not everywhere America or everywhere in the world. It's something you know you're in Detroit when you're there. It, it's got a special feel. It's got a special vibe. So Detroit is renewing itself from the core, as is Cleveland, as is St. Louis, as is Milwaukee, as is Buffalo, as is Philadelphia, as is Pittsburgh. I mean, this is what's happening in our great industrial cities, and our great suburban cities in the South and the Sun Belt are renewing their cores. Go to Phoenix. Go to Houston. Go to San Antonio go to Atlanta. There's something exciting happening um, that is very healthy for the city and very healthy for the metropolis. And it's really a reflection of these broad market and demographic forces. I want to mention that uh, on the website, we'll have show notes. I'll include a link to your book. You also uh, have an article with Julie Wagner yes. called The Rise of Innovation Districts, which is what we're talking about. The Rise of Innovation Districts, a new geography of innovation in America. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, to follow up on in the same topic, um, how are these these new um, innovation districts, this new geography of innovation, uh, different from more traditional urban development that we've seen fairly recently in the last few decades, where you you might have some mixed residential and retail, and maybe a sports stadium like uh, you know Chinatown here in D.C. Well, there was this thinking that went on for some period of time that um, cities to be successful needed to be consumer cities. You know, when you think about stadia, when you think about retail. Um, I used to call this Starbucks and Stadia as sort of the ubiquitous economic development play for many cities. Um, consumption is important, but what really drives cities, what really drives metros, what really drives the national economy is production and innovation and trade. That's how cities become wealthy, uh, not just in general, but for their people, for their workers. And so I think increasingly what has happened in the U.S., is cities are beginning to understand what do we make that we trade to the world? What do we innovate that we provide to other cities or metros in the U.S. and beyond? Um, And if you really focus on that and you leverage your distinctive competitive edge and advantage, 
then consumption will follow. Um, so I think for a long time in the U.S., and look, the crack up in this economy in the Great Recession was a part because we were way too focused on consumption and debt and too little focus on the fundamentals. What's your innovation economy? What are you making? What are you exporting? What foreign investment are you bringing in for these purposes? Cities I now post-recession, I think, are really beginning to focus on the fundamentals, frankly, while the national government is on a frolic and detour. We put in another plug for another uh, piece of research your program did recently on uh, trade networks and freight throughout the country. It was fascinating to see how all of these metro areas trade within uh, their regions, but also globally. It's amazing. Well, the U.S. You know, is, is, has been an inward-looking society for a long time. It's ironic because we're the most diverse country in the world. Uh, but we're, because we're so big and we tend to grow at 25 million to 30 million people a decade, I mean, we're not like China or Germany that's really hit a demographic wall. We just keep growing. Um, we've focused for our growth internally. If you go into Europe or obviously if you go into Asia and Latin America, a lot of their focus has been on external growth, exporting trade. In Europe, this goes back to the Hanseatic League. In Asia, this goes back to the Silk Road. I mean, there's a culture, there's a history built in, ingrained of trading cities. And we think um, in the 21st century, a city to be prosperous, a city to be wealthy, a city to work for its people needs to be a trading city. And so that's why over the past um, really three or four years with J.P. Morgan Chase, we've promoted this notion of global cities um, so that U.S. cities could first understand their position in the global economy, but then leverage um, and broaden that position. Uh, let me probe just a little bit more on innovation districts, because there's one issue uh, that you raise that, that I think is really interesting and potentially difficult, and that has to do with um, social inequality. Yes. So we see how concentrations of startup firms and these leading companies and um, institutions and these smart people are spinning out uh, new technologies and innovations. But where does that leave the, the more disadvantaged people in, in these communities? So on several levels. And I think, first of all, we've used to think about the innovative economy and the tech economy, let's say, as an exclusive economy. It must be only for brainiacs with PhDs from Stanford or MIT. Actually, the STEM economy, science, technology, engineering, and math, and frankly, the STEAM economy, science, technology, education, uh, engineering, arts, and math, is about 20% of the U.S. economy with half of the jobs available to people with sub-baccalaureate degrees. They're going to community colleges or they've come out of high schools with special skills that they, they can use in the manufacturing or the energy or services sector. So, first of all, it's really important to understand that a lot of the jobs that are growing in the innovative part of the innovation districts are available to people with these skills. The second piece is for every innovation job in a city, five other jobs are created in the consumption economy or in the economy that feeds the innovation sector. Um, all the firms that support the tech economy or support the anchor institutions like advanced research institutions. So many of the cities that I work in in the United States, particularly these older industrial cities or frankly many of the southern cities, some built cities as well, require jobs. There's still a jobs deficit. And so you want to supercharge the innovation economy. And if you're smart, you want to upgrade the education and skills of people who literally may be living 
five minutes away, 15 minutes away in areas of high poverty so they can participate in this economy. I think we are relearning how to educate our young adults in the United States. For years, we shunned um, manufacturing. For years, we shunned um, what we used to call shop, <laughs> right? vocational education, on this notion that everyone had to go get a four-year degree to participate. Well, that's just not true. And I think what we need to do is broaden our vision of education and then working very closely with innovative firms and these clusters of innovation bring more and more people into this um, you know, very successful and prosperous economy. That relates to demographic transformation, which we could talk about as we go forward. Uh, and, and we've just heard recently from President Obama a new proposal to have community college free for, for certain Americans, which Tennessee, for which example, Tennessee has already done. done. I mean, again, I think um, you know whether that will actually happen or not at the national level. I think, in many ways, the president, and this is a traditional sort of federalist circuitry of innovation. The president um, is watching what's happening in the states or watching what's happening in cities and metros. We could be talking about community college. We could be talking about pre-K. We could be talking about any issue. The states are bubbling. The cities and metros are bubbling. The national government looks at that and says, okay, how, how do we make this uniform across the country? Whether that will still happen in the United States is not clear for a whole bunch of not just partisan reasons but um, fiscal reasons. Um, because so much more of the federal spend is going towards entitlements as the society ages. But it's the right notion. Um, we, we have to think about education in a much broader way uh, to service and populate the innovation economy. Since I brought the federal government back into the conversation, let me just ask, does the federal government have a role in supporting these innovation districts? Well, the role of the federal government is mostly to invest in R&D. You know, basic science, applied research. If you go into many innovation districts in the United States um, and you peel back the onion, why is MIT, Georgia Tech, Carnegie Mellon, Johns Hopkins, you know, University of Pennsylvania, Drexel, Washington University, um, you know, University of Washington? I mean, I could go all around the country, including some of our national labs. Why is there so much entrepreneurial activity happening literally in the shadow of the great advanced research institutions in the medical campus is because the federal government has for a long time provided a platform of significant funding in research and development. That is threatened now because of partisan nonsense and because of the, the fiscal you know, constraints of the national government. But, so that's a platform for innovation districts. But the real work in innovation districts is happening by public, private, and civic institutions and leaders that are then building off the platform. So first message to the national government, continue to fund, in fact, expand investments in research and development it, and in this necklace, in this network of advanced institutions we have in the U.S. It's what makes us absolutely distinctive in the world and, frankly, the rest of the world wants to be like us. So that's what I would say to the national government. Provide that platform. Cities and metros, in many respects, are going to build off of it. So from uh, finance and money issues to networks, you've talked about metros as networks. Can you talk about this concept that you've uh, discussed, metro finance, new metro finance models? Well, I think um, what we're trying to do is just reflect how cities and metropolitan areas grow and prosper. When I go into a particular place, 
I mean, let's take, you know, West Philly, for example, the University City area, where you have Drexel, where you have um, the University of Pennsylvania, where you have the University City Science Center, which is a consortium of about 30-plus research institutions, both in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. And you say, okay, well, how does that place grow? How does, how does housing get built? How does mixed-use development happen? How do co-working spaces come to be? How does transit get built and expanded and modernized? It's mixed. It's not the city government by itself. It's not the national government or states. It's not just the private and civic sector, um, companies that are local or companies that are global. It's this mix of capital that basically comes together and is deployed to create a vibrant, vital, innovative entrepreneurial space. That's Metro Finance. It's the aggregation of capital that then basically builds a productive and innovative and inclusive economy. You know, in the past, we used to call, you know, we used to talk about muni finance, which is really just the way that cities go to the capital markets to build infrastructure. I think that actually the way cities get built and metros get built in this century is metro finance. It's that combination, uh, interplay, aggregation of capital from multiple sources. I want to I toss in just one political kind of question. Yeah. Again, thinking about um, the leaders uh, of these areas, I know they're not all elected officials, as, right. you, as you've described many times, but some of them are. They're mayors um, and you know, county leaders, that sort of thing. Are, are they subject to the same kinds of political currents and pressures that we're seeing with politicians at the state and federal level? Well, I think it's the difference between governments and networks. I mean, the federal government is a government, and therefore it can be hijacked by partisanship. States are governments, and they also can be hijacked by partisanship. Cities and metros are networks of leaders, um, and they tend to be highly pragmatic because you wake up every morning and people are basically saying, what are you doing about this problem? Don't give us an ideological response. Don't give us rhetoric. Don't tell us you're sending it to a committee to study. Um, Don't tell us you're just deliberating on it. We want action. When you're up against that kind of pressure day in, day out, um, you, you begin to basically problem solve. Um, and, and what you do is you take the best ideas from wherever they come from. Um, and the best ideas tend to be a blend of Democratic and Republican you know, ideas or liberal and conservative. Um, so I, you know, I, I tend to find – this is why it's so exciting – Um, and liberating to be working in cities and metropolitan areas at a time of this partisan polarization and ideological polarization in the U.S. is at the end of the day, you know, there is a pragmatic caucus that rule and co-govern cities and metros. Uh, Michael Nutter, the mayor of Philadelphia, calls this the get stuff done party Um, because that's how you get rewarded. You know, in Washington, you get rewarded for stopping things. Um, At the local level, you get rewarded whether you get reelected or you're, whether you're extolled, you know, for your um, for your accomplishments for for doing things, uh, and that's the difference. Um, and I think that's built more and more into the just the cultures of nations today. It's not just an American phenomenon. And perhaps extending off that, I read somewhere that eight heads of state or government worldwide right. are former city mayors. Do you think that's significant? Well, I think the voters um, in these states are being very smart because, you know, whether it's Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado or Governor Brown in um, California or Governor Haslam, you know, former mayor of Knoxville, Republican mayor of Knoxville in Tennessee, um, they're rewarding people who basically were beyond partisanship. 
I mean, they, they, were, they were seen as uh, getting stuff done. And we can go up to, to Senate, you know, Bob Corker, former mayor of Chattanooga, or Cory Booker, the former mayor of Newark. I mean, voters understand what they want are people who can get beyond this simplistic partisan bromides. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think when I think about how progress will be made in this country in the foreseeable future, and I would argue, frankly, in the next century, I think it will be it will happen from these networks of leaders um, that that come together, collaborate to compete in the service of their community. So just kind of start to wrap this up. You've been a leader in this space in urban and metro policy for decades. You travel to hundreds of metro areas around the country and the world. You've written this book with Jennifer Bradley. What, if anything, surprised you working on this book or in general? What surprises you? Well, you know, I'm sort of you know, constantly surprised, frankly, um, because, uh, you know, it's, um, I find both in the United States and outside the United States sort of endless continuous innovation. Um, the United States and the world face some big challenges. Um, can we build economies that work for everyone? Uh, can we deal with climate change um, and become more resilient? Um, you know, can we move beyond some of these uh, deep divisions and, and manage demographic transformation, um, as particularly as our country becomes bigger and more diverse? Um, so I'm constantly on the lookout and then constantly surprised by how innovative places are in dealing with these issues and then how quickly places observe um, and then replicate, adapt, and tailor innovations. So, you know, take climate. Um, Copenhagen, a relatively small city and by global frame, right? About half a million in the city, a million in the metro, um, is moving towards no carbon um, in a relatively short period of time, not just because of their biking, (laughs) though that's obviously very critical, but because um, the way they're building their communities, the way they're generating their power and distributing their energy is done in a way that uh, that obviously is going to lead to um, um, you know a sustainable future. Well, every city in the world, including the Chinese cities, are in Copenhagen week in and week out trying to discover the secret sauce that they can then bring back to their place and adapt and tailor. So whether it's climate, whether it's income inequality, wage stagnation, any issue, demographic transformation, cities are constant innovators like companies. Um, they're collections, really, of these private, public, and civic. Um, and the new circuitry of innovation is for cities to learn from each other and then quickly, quickly, quickly adapt and tailor. It's not waiting for Washington or some global government system that doesn't really exist to, to, to tell us what to do. In a way, it's been reversed. We're telling them what to do. Well, I know you've been the, uh, the leader of this uh, program, Metropolitan Policy Program, for over over 18 years now. Uh, and it's it's refreshing and exciting to hear that you're constantly surprised by what you're seeing out there, uh, and and we'll be sure to continue to uh, to listen, to follow, to read um, what you and your colleagues are up to. Bruce, thank you so much for making time today for this really interesting conversation. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you have any questions for Bruce, John, or any guests of the show, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. This podcast is made possible by the production skills of Zach Colzer, the art design of Jessica Pavone, and web support from Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan.
You can listen to episodes on our website at brookings.edu slash bcp, on iTunes, and on Stitcher.